So good morning again on this gorgeous morning and we have our second little reflection of the day and again we're reflecting on what it means to be a disciple of Jesus today and we are looking at Mary, his mother. Ever since the time of Eleanor Roosevelt, American First Ladies typically promote a cause to which they commit the prestige of their office. In the 60s, Lady Bird Johnson focused on cleaning up the nation's highways. Betty Ford focused on substance abuse. Michelle Obama on education and healthy eating. Nancy Reagan decided her focus would be the war on drugs. So she spearheaded a campaign that had a simple, snappy title, Just Say No. Her message to those tempted by illicit drugs was Just Say No. The the campaign wasn't a huge success. Vulnerable people need help and support in order to be able to just say no. When preachers traditionally talk about the mother of Jesus, we tend to emphasize that she said yes. When the angel announced God's extraordinary plan for her, Mary said yes. She may have hesitated at first, but then she said yes. She said, let it be done unto me. Her yes, as we know, changed everything. Christians have always been urged to follow the example of Mary, first among the saints. We are encouraged to say yes to God at work in our lives, yes to whatever God may be asking of us. We are encouraged to just say yes, which is what we try to do with varying degrees of success. But Mary wasn't just a yes woman who meekly subscribed to what God asked of her. Mary was also a no woman, a woman with strong views of her own. And just as we are urged to imitate Mary's yes, we must also imitate her no, not just endorse what she accepted, but also endorse what she rejected not only to say yes, but also to just say no. I'd like to reflect just a little on Mary's no and why that should be our refrain as well. There's a new book just out written by Mary Ann Seigart called The Authority Gap. Seigart offers a breakdown of all the ways in which an authority gap exists between men and women and how its cumulative results amount to de facto informal laws prohibiting women from taking certain jobs or doing certain things. Despite the progress society has made, she says, there remains many ways in which women are prevented from achieving 
equality. Saigot interviewed more than 100 women and grounded their accounts with her own research. This cast of characters, these 100 women, support Saigot's view that no matter how powerful a woman is, no matter how outwardly high-achieving, she will not be vested with the same authority as a man of similar and often lower status. She interviewed heads of states, CEO or CEOs of large companies, holders of high political office, Booker Prize winners. They speak about the obstacles they face in trying to advance their careers. A good example of the authority gap was the recent incident when the President of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, was left standing without a chair to sit on during a meeting with the Turkish President. Her male colleague from the Commission was given a chair beside Erdogan, while Ursula, embarrassed, was left standing on the margins. Despite the progress women have made in the last century, an immense authority gap exists between the sexists. Women have a long way to go to bridge that gap. Within the four Gospels are at least 13 scenes where Mary of Nazareth, identified either by her own name or as the mother of Jesus, speaks, takes action, or is described as an essential part of the action. One of the longest glimpses of Mary is at the beginning of Luke's Gospel, when, pregnant with Jesus and visiting Elizabeth, she sings the Magnificat. The Song of Mary is the oldest Advent hymn, says Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German theologian killed by the Nazis. It is at once the most passionate, the wildest, one might even say the most revolutionary Advent hymn ever sung. This is not the gentle, tender, dreamy Mary whom we sometimes see in paintings. This is the passionate, proud, enthusiastic Mary who speaks out here. This song, Bonhoeffer continues, has none of the sweet, nostalgic, or even playful tones of some of our Christmas carols. It is instead a hard, strong, inexorable song about collapsing thrones and humble lords of this world, about the power of God and the powerlessness of humankind. These are the tones of the women prophets of the Old Testament that now come to life in Mary's mouth, he says. Mary's Magnificat is the most any woman gets to say in the New Testament. While we are told that other women proclaim the good news, most significantly at the empty tomb on Easter morning, we don't get to hear their own words. It's a reminder of the traditional silencing of women's voices in the church, whether in scripture or tradition. The Magnificat, as we know, has two parts. 
The first praises God's mercy and greatness, and the second speaks of God's stance on behalf of the oppressed. What begins as praise for divine loving kindness toward a marginalized and oppressed woman like Mary grows to embrace all the poor of the world. The second part of the Magnificat articulates the great biblical theme of reversal, where lowly groups are defended by God while the arrogant end up losers. The second part of the Magnificat is where Mary articulates her resounding no. God is not happy with the status quo, Mary is saying. God is saying no to things as they are. The coming reign of God will disturb the order of the world run by the heart of heart, the oppressor. Through God's action, the social hierarchy of wealth and poverty, power and subjugation will be turned upside down. By placing the Magnificat on the lips of Mary, St. Luke depicts her as the spokeswoman for God's redemptive justice. In her words, she anticipates the good news and does so as a woman whose consciousness is rooted in the wisdom of the strong women of Israel. Knowledgeable about the liberating traditions of her own people and trumpeting them with tough authority, Mary stands as a prophet of the coming age, a prophet in line with the great prophets of the Old Testament. The theologian Elizabeth Johnson puts it like, says that this is a revolutionary song of salvation whose concrete social, economic and political dimensions cannot be blunted. People are hungry because of the triple taxes being exacted for the Roman oppressor, the local government and the temple hierarchy. The lowly are being crushed because of the mighty on their thrones in Rome and their deputies in the provinces. This situation mustn't be allowed to stand, Mary says. Now, with the nearness of the messianic age, a new social order is at hand. Mary's hymn praises God for the kind of salvation that involves real transformation, a reversal of the social order of things. It's a canticle as relevant today as 2,000 years ago. People in need in every society hear a blessing in this hymn. The battered woman, the single parent without resources, those without food, the homeless family, the young abandoned to their own devices, the old who are discarded, all who are subjected to social contempt are encompassed in the hope that Mary proclaims. The Church in Latin America especially is responsible for hearing this proclamation of hope in a newly refreshed way. In fact, the Magnificat's message is so subversive 
that for a time in the 1980s, the government of Guatemala banned its recitation in public. Peruvian theologian Gustavo Gutierrez argues that any reading is fruitless that attempts to tone down what Mary's song tells us about the preferential love of God for the lowly and the abused and about the transformation of history that God's loving will implies. This message, he says, will not appeal to those satisfied with the status quo. Even affluent people of goodwill will have difficulty in dealing with its shocking revolutionary ring. God loves everyone, but in an unjust world, Mary is making clear that divine love is particularly on the side of those whose dignity must be recovered. God wants to build up a community marked by human dignity, justice, and mutual regard. Mary not only sings of God's liberating transformation of the social order, but like those in her song, she herself occupies a position of poverty and powerlessness in her society by virtue of the fact that she is a woman. She stands in solidarity with other women who strive for the fullness of life. The world is distorted by sin. People accumulate power and wealth at the expense of others. Suffering is rampant, and the pattern persists through the generations. I just finished a book yesterday by Patrick Redden Keefe called Empire of Pain. It's about the opiate crisis in America, which has destroyed hundreds of thousands of lives in the last 25 years, and how one family in particular, the Sacklers, were responsible. How they put rapacious greed before everything else. Mary expresses God's opposition to this state of affairs in the world. Hearing the cries of the oppressed, God aims to make the world right again, being faithful to God's covenant promise. And God chooses Mary, a lowly woman as she describes herself, with no power or prestige in the society of her day to make God's plan possible. Read through these eyes, Mary's song of divine victory over the powerful becomes a song about the liberation of the most nondescript poor people on this planet, an upending of the prevailing social, economic, political, and religious order of things. So we can say that Mary's song of God's victory over those who dominate others rings with support for women in the struggle against sexism as well as against racism, classism, xenophobia, and all other injustice. The spirit who filled Mary with life and power, uh, filled her prophetic voice, is the same spirit who inspires and fills with life women and Christians of all ages. One of the strongest lessons 
in light of the traditional Mariology with which we are so familiar, says liberation theologian Leonardo Boff, is the right to say no. Men toiling in the service of male power interpret Mary only as the woman who knew how to say yes, Boff says, but in the Magnificat she takes on as her own the divine no to what crushes the lowly. She stands up fearlessly and sings out that it will be overturned. There is no passivity here, he says, but solidarity with divine outrage over the degradation of life and with the divine promise to repair the world. In the process, she bursts out of the boundaries of male-defined femininity while still every inch a faithful woman. Singing of her joy in God and God's victory over oppression, she becomes not an oppressed but a prophetic woman. The Magnificat gives us an image of Mary speaking with prophetic authority, a liberating hymn of praise. It is the liberating hymn of praise all of us in the church, female and male, are called to sing. What does it mean for us today to be people who echo Mary's resolute no? To echo Mary's no, I think, means obviously being a social justice advocate, maybe even being woke. It would mean standing on the side of the hungry, the prisoner, the sick, the outcast, the suffering, risking for them. It means not being afraid to speak truth to power, whatever the cost. When I look at 17-year-old Greta Thunberg, for example, that Swedish champion of the environment, I'm reminded of Mary, a brave girl not afraid to speak out, a determined girl who shows others the way. And I think of Jean Donovan, the 27-year-old who 40 years ago gave her life for the victims of oppression in El Salvador. To echo Mary's no means working to ensure that women have a full and equal voice in the church, a voice they've never had. It means vowing to never again abuse or exploit the weak and the vulnerable, like so many professionals in the church did in the past, to the church's eternal shame. It means working for a whole new way of living and relating, one that anticipates the kingdom of God. Think today not just of Mary as a yes woman, which is a familiar way in which we view her, not just as a yes woman, but just as significantly of Mary as a no woman. And like her, let each of us do our bit to just say no to anything that impedes the unfolding of God's glorious reign.